We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to episode 325 of the Barcelona Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hilton, and we've got some Blue Wire synergy going on today because from the Arsenal Vision Podcast, the founder, Elliot Smith. How's it going, Elliot? Yeah, great. Uh, I mean, aside from the football, but otherwise great. <laughs> well, and a long-suffering Arsenal fan, of course, so somebody that I, I think understands what Kool-Aids are feeling this season. But instead of comparing and contrasting, both teams fight for the top four. Instead, we're talking about the main man, the main topic of today's show. Elliot joined me to discuss Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang coming to Barcelona on a free transfer with a six-month plus one-year option at the age of 32. And uh, Elliot, before we talk about Aubameyang's work at Arsenal, I want to go all the way back because I think, to be honest, I think I watched him more at Dortmund than I did what I've seen from him at Arsenal just because I'm so busy with the Barca stuff usually on weekends. So can't say I've tuned into the Gooners too many times other than the big matchups against Tottenham or Chelsea or other top six competitions. But do you think since he arrived in 2018 at Arsenal that he's remained the same player or have you seen a change in his game from when he arrived from Borussia Dortmund till today? It's a little hard to judge because the circumstances at Arsenal changed so dramatically from when he came in to where we are now. So obviously Arsene Wenger signed him uh, one window after having signed Alexander Lacazette, which is a story more for an Arsenal podcast than this one, but and he came and he hit the ground running and he was really good right from the start, I felt. Um, really ashamed that he was cup-tied in the Europa League because I think we would have gone on to win the Europa League had he been able to play in that, but he couldn't. So uh, he played great, but then Arsene Wenger leaves, Unai Emery comes in, and you know the football took a turn for the worse, especially from an attacking standpoint. Despite that, and despite often being played on the wing, on the left wing, he continued to be the leading goal scorer. He had consecutive 22-goal seasons in the league. Um, and I think it's fair to say mostly beloved and appreciated for it. You know, big smile on his face, lots of goals. I don't know that he was always deployed in the best way possible or in the right way. And, I, you know, he wasn't used in the same way he was at Dortmund. We've seen some players struggle to adapt from Bundesliga life to Premier life. I mean, Timo Werner could arguably be said to be a similar player in the sense of a lot of speed, running behind, scored a lot of goals, did it in the Bundesliga, not finding it so easy to do that in the Premier League. So there, there were adaptation issues, but again, 22 goals in consecutive seasons, you're not going to complain about that return. But along the way, there were things like a missed penalty in the North London Derby against Tottenham that 
cost us beating them. And ultimately, you could say cost us top four and a path back to the Champions League. You know, there were missed sitters, which has always been a part of, you know, who he is and a part of any striker. But that stick in the memory that I think made it harder for people to really adore him because they cost us opportunities to get back to where we needed to go. And I think the last point I'd make about the, the playing style is just that from the left, he did a lot of the tracking back defensively. He was often out on the touchline. He was often very peripheral. And while I think Aubameyang is a prolific goal scorer who has a unique preternatural ability to find space in the box to score goals, I don't think I'd say that he's a technical leader, that he is going to pick the right pass every time, that his touch is always going to be the cleanest when he's trying to beat a man off the dribble. And so putting him on the wing meant more crossing, more isolation, more attempts to link up with teammates. And that that wasn't always as effective. But again, in any of this analysis is the question of whether Unai Emery and now Mikel Arteta ever really figured out how to unlock the Arsenal attack. I mean, Arteta has only sort of started to do it a little bit in recent months. So not the player he was at Dortmund, certainly past his prime, outside of his prime for a chunk of his time at Arsenal, but also I think contributory factors like coaching changes, tactical changes, and, and being forced to play out on the left muddy the water in terms of making a clear determination of his his raw skill set. Well, it's interesting when you look at his raw numbers, we talk about numbers, and if you simply just put it on a page, 163 games, 92 goals, 20 assists, plus a golden boot in just four years at Arsenal. So I mean, immediately looking at those numbers, I start to ask, where does he fit into the pantheon of great Arsenal forwards? And yet he is seen with these, I mean, major issues with the, the sitters and the, the moments that Arsenal fans just wish they could have got a little bit more. Well, I mean, I, I think much like with Mesut Ozil, you have to draw a bright line at the point that his next contract was given. Um, and, and the two circumstances are eerily similar because you have a player who was performing at a super high level, got a new bumper deal, stopped performing at a high level, fell out with the manager and became totally frozen out. They both went through that. Now you can say, is that a manager issue, not a player issue? That's a debate for another time. I think before the new contract, if he had just left, if they said, you know what? He's 31. We're not going to re-sign him. Thank you for the work you've done. We're going to sell you now. He would have left, even having been there just the three seasons, with immense uh, admiration and appreciation because also he delivered an FA Cup trophy. I mean, that FA Cup was won basically because of Aubameyang. His goals against City and Chelsea. You talk about two teams to beat to get to an FA Cup final and win it. Doesn't get much harder than that. And he was really the guy who did it. But it happened in front of no fans, no stadium, and no open-top bus parade because of COVID. And as a result, I think it is almost a forgotten FA Cup, if that can exist. And also maybe because of the FA Cup success we'd had in recent time, fans had sort of moved on from it a little bit and wanted European glory, wanted to get back to the top of the Premier League table. So before the contract, hugely admired, given a difficult role with different coaches, still managed to excel, still managed to lead us to an FA Cup. Post-contract, Diminishing goals, diminishing role, disciplinary issues, frozen out of the team. And the recency bias means that people are going to remember that. But what I will say, just certain, you know, social media is not necessarily indicative of too much, but just looking at the messages on social media, a lot of appreciative messages being sent to him on social media for the, his time at the club. I think he leaves under a bit of a cloud, but with people recognizing that there were good moments as well. Well, I can tell you from a Barca perspective this season that 
if the Barca were to win the Europa League, that means back to the Champions League. And if they finish top four, which is more likely in the Liga, that also means Champions League football. So it's interesting that I think any trophy of any kind this season, obviously, which would only be the Europa League trophy, would matter a lot to Kool-Aid's moving forward. And you mentioned the manager. You mentioned what broke down. So he and Mikel Arteta, you know, it seems like desperate, that being Obama Yang, to leave Arsenal, to terminate that contract, to get out. Um, and it almost felt like he wanted to leave Arsenal even more than he wanted to come to Barcelona. And with his press conference today, kind of having to walk back the fact that he said in the past, especially in 2016, he said, you know, for his granddad, I've wanted to play for Real Madrid. He was Atletico Madrid yeah. fan. So Real Madrid was a team I wanted to play for, but he'd be happy. And, you know, obviously it's a walk back that he'd be happy to his granddad would be proud he's playing for Barca now, of course. But uh, once again, it just seems like Barcelona was the lifeline to get out of Arsenal more than it was this player that desperately wanted to play for Barcelona. So I do ask, yeah, what broke down in that relationship between he and Arteta? And of course, Arteta also coming from the same coaching tree, if you will, of Pep Guardiola. So I'm also wondering, jumping in there, were there even things that you think Arteta and Xavi might have in common that unfortunately might rear its ugly head again? Hard to say. So I want to just take, I think, add one caveat to your setup there, which is I think if this was purely about money and purely about getting out of Arsenal with no regard for where he went or what he'd be doing, he would have gone to Saudi Arabia mm. because he could have kept the wages he was on, made more money. Very true. Yep. Um, he's going to make less money. Now, I don't know how much less, but he's going to make less money by going to Barca than he would have had he finished his Arsenal contract or gone to Saudi Arabia. Well, I think the number um, there is, it's, it was 350,000 pounds. And now it's 100,000 pounds. So it's about a third of what he was going to make. He left. Having said that, I think there was a payoff from our Arsenal side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, A big one. But, you know, again, still, he's given up money to make this move. Right. Um, Here's what's kind of interesting to me. He was a model citizen at Dortmund until he wasn't. And he wasn't right around the time that he wanted to move out of Dortmund. Now, a player you'll be familiar with is Mani Dembele, is his best, best friend. And Dembele got his move out of Dortmund by basically throwing a strop and, you know, disciplinary issues at Dortmund towards the end that put them in a position where they felt they'd move him on. Aubameyang would certainly have seen how that worked, talked to Dembele. Dembele said, hey, I threw a tantrum. I got out of there. Why don't you try it? He did it. He got his move to Arsenal. Did he then decide, I'm sick of this no Europe thing. I'm going to become difficult to live with and I'll get my move. Well, the problem is he probably didn't count on two things. Mikel Arteta is perfectly fine to just say you're out of the team to buy and not play him at all. Yeah. Not you know, a few starts or you're in and out of team, like literally not play him at all. I don't think a lot of coaches would do that because you're punishing yourself as a coach too, right? When you take your best striker out of the team. But Mikel was willing to do that. And the other part of that is when he was trying to get out of Dortmund, he was still in his prime. And he's one of the most fearsome strikers in the world. Well, he's trying to get out of Arsenal on a 350,000 a week wage at 33 years old, no longer in his prime. The appetite for people to want to go in on that situation is different. Now you could say, well, he still engineered it. So if you want to be cynical, you could say that he did engineer his way out of Arsenal through a really rocky period and through a, a tremendous amount of uh, challenges to himself and to his team. Or you could just say he just genuinely has trouble with discipline. I, I suspect that he does have some issues with um, punctuality. That seems to be pretty well reported. But I think the breakdown between Arteta and Aubameyang that caused this ultimate rift must have involved a series of much worse things. And it wouldn't surprise me if those things were sort of intentional to the extent that there was a thought in his mind that I can, I can make this untenable and I can get a move. So, you know, we'll never know. It's speculative. He came in and was a model citizen at first for us, just like he was a model citizen at first for Dortmund. And my guess is he will be a model citizen for some time 
at Barcelona until that point in time where he doesn't want to be in Barcelona anymore. When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's Piquet and Puyol or Piquet and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, with one difference being for Barcelona, unlike at Arsenal, he will not have the captaincy. He'll never have that. They'll never have the armband. He'll never have that responsibility. He's also 32. Again, it's on six months plus one additional year. So this is very much short term. This is very much where it really it's perform and show up and see what you can do beyond that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the, the, the captaincy and being stripped to it. But I mean, I think you hit that where his professionalism is going to go as far as he wants to take it, as far as how long he wants to remain. And I think as far as whether his professionalism goes away, awry for, for Xavi, unfortunately, Barcelona, 
I mean, I, even say unlike Arsenal, don't have the option. They're already dealing with Dembele, whether will he, won't he play him. And so to add another forward to that with Ansu's long-term injury. So Barcelona did not have the luxury if they're going to make top four to potentially sit a player that around the edges might have a little bit of issues with their professional. You, you, you could argue that Arsenal didn't have that luxury either. But mm-hmm. Mikel Arteta, and some would say wrongly and some would say rightly, lives, breathes, eats, sleeps, culture. Culture is important yeah. to him. And he will not tolerate it any other way. I think one thing, and this is sort of true of you guys, I think, but we have a very young squad of very talented young players. And their future is arguably more important than our present because their future is our future. And having a disruptive disciplinary issue in the squad as the example for young players could have a knock-on effect of making that future less bright than it should be. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that. I'm saying it is a consideration. You know, so... A very unique set of circumstances led to this in my view. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, again, funny that you say that when you say a young core. And I said, wait a second, are you talking about Pedri and Gabi and Nico Gonzalez and Araujo? Yeah. And, and, and so they are very much parallel right now, Arsenal and, and Barcelona as such. So as far as where Aubameyang, going back to the field stuff, because I'm just assuming he's going to play, he wants to play, he's going to show up and all this stuff at 32 years old. Already we're throwing out the recent injury or health scare that he did have, as well as having to come back from the African Cup of Nations with Gabon due to the COVID issue. But would you think that Obama Yang would be more comfortable playing as the striker or on the left wing in Barca's possession-based system? And you already did kind of mention that his first touch, his tactical ability, is not going to wow Kool-Aid. It's not necessarily the quote-unquote, I think we overdo the Barca player type situation. But yeah, certainly he's not, he's there to, for speed. He's there for his physical tools. I, you know, I have to remember my, my memories of Samuel Eto'o are a little bit blurry at this point. I think of him as more of a penalty box striker, a poacher, a guy who gets on the end of stuff. Maybe I'm remembering wrong. I, correct me. I think that no disrespect to him, but I think Eto'o was just beyond that. I think Eto'o, if anything, mm-hmm. is severely underrated in the era that he was in. I just mm-hmm. think he was more technical than people give him credit for. But yes, he was so quick, so fast. He had the ability to physically overpower opponents. But his movement, too, was just... Just his understanding of space was beyond. See, beyond what Obama I, I, I would say, if you had to say to me, is Obamiang one of the best in the world at anything? I would say Obamiang is the best in the is if he is still, but mm-hmm. you know, at the peak of his powers, he was the best in the world, or at least one of the best in the world at finding space mm-hmm. at understanding when to make that last burst, where to, you know, do I go to the back post or do I drop to the spot? It is amazing how many goals he scored for us where you're like, well, that's a tap in. And you're like, he got lucky. And you watch it again. You're like, no, he understood the way the play was building. And mm-hmm. he basically had the intuition to understand where to be that would give him the best, the, the greatest opportunity to, to convert the chance. So, you know, I, I think if you look at him, I mean, I don't know if you do any expected goals analysis on the pod, but if you look at expected goals <clears throat> metrics and you look at him like at Dortmund, he has a season where he was literally like one expected goal per 90. That's as good as any, you know, non-Messi Ronaldo category. That's as good as it gets in the world. He's had, I mean, when he first came to Arsenal, I think he was 0.85, then 0.65, 0.55. Those are still good metrics, but now you're talking about 0.35, you know, and at that point you're talking about much more of a mid-tier striker. And I, I think the biggest difference other than the system is just, is he still using his, his first step, right? Is he, you know, is he still able to get to the positions at the, you know, a lot of people think, well, he's still fast, but I don't think that's how it works with these athletes. If I am an elite athlete and I expect to be able to burst at a certain rate, to get to a certain spot at a certain moment, and I lose a half step, 
I'm still incredibly quick, but my timing is now completely off in terms of when I can get to that spot, where I need to start my run to beat the center back. You know, I'm seeing him not burst past center backs in quite the way he might have. And so I think all of that comes into play. But for me, if he's going to thrive, you know, I, I think he has to be able to run the channels. I think he has to be in the box or at the very least near the box. If he's going to be out by the touchline, if he's going to be on the wing, you you will get – he will be not just not appreciated. He will be loathed because he is not going to do anything for you out there. I think you, you probably have to play him up front and hope that you have enough creativity around to get the ball into the box in space. Or if you're going to play him out wide, you have to overlap and overload on that side and let him push more towards the channels. You know, an inside wide forward, not a not a true wide forward, if that makes sense. Well, actually, I think that is beneficial for Barcelona. Jordi Alba wants to dominate that left wing. And we mm-hmm. saw Ansu Fati, that inverted left winger. It's why in the last matchup, it was uh, Iziabe who started on the right wing, started on the left wing, rather. And then because he was playing too wide, he would switch over to the right. Ferran Torres of Man City was brought over to the left side as an inverted winger. So I actually do think that would wind up being a pretty good fit. And you mentioned even a 0.55 non-penalty expected goals. Mm-hmm. Adama Traore is coming in from loan from Wolverhampton. I said this on the earlier show at a 0.17, right? So that's one wing. And then Usmane Dembele, even when playing this season, is a 0.32. So if you want to tell me that a new winger for Barcelona is above 0.55 non-penalty expected goals, yes, stats aren't everything, but just Barcelona need a player to put the ball in the back of the net. Yeah, I, I will just say, like with the Dama Traore, he's a player I admire, but I think like he's a very frustrating player because he has, you know, he is the best dribbler in the world, period. 99%. He will... He is going to dribble so many. You are, he's like a bowling ball. I, I mean, if you haven't watched Wolves, and I don't know why too many people watching Barca would watch a lot of Wolves, but like, I don't know that there's a player like him in the world. And so I actually could see him being the perfect foil for Aubameyang because if you put the ball at Adama's feet and let him dribble three guys and just create chaos and get to the edge of the box, and Oba can run into the space vacated by people having to readjust for this. The biggest problem with Adama is he doesn't know how to deliver the final ball. Right. Obama Yang could be standing on the penalty spot unmarked after Teori dribbled three guys and he'll try to give it to Obama Yang and kick it over the crossbar. That's that's the Adama Traore problem. But I think the two of them feel tailor-made for each other in the sense that if anyone's going to open up spaces for Oba to find and stand in and be available in, it's Adama Traore. That feels like a match made in heaven. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see how that midfield as well builds up because, mm-hmm. again, one of the issues that Barcelona have is that Pedri, Gabi, Nico, you have even Frankie de Young, you have all these players who are capable of creating so much of it. But what happens when Barca gets in the final third, relying so heavily on Luke de Young, and even though he's been injured, Martin Brothwaite, to finish these chances on a platter. But the fact that Barcelona are kind of going against their own adage that Adama is a counterattacking player. Aubameyang is best in a counterattacking style. So it is it is where your your back line and your midfield are going to be saying one thing and your forward line are going to be saying uh, something else. But again, if Aubameyang is putting the ball in the back of the net, it doesn't matter. It just results are results, wins are wins. And I know Kool-Aids are going to fight against, well, it's not the way we want, but Barcelona top four doesn't matter how it doesn't matter how it happens. So 15 goal, uh, 15 games rather this season for Obama Yang, seven goals, two assists. What are the chances do you think that he hits the ground running here? Well, I mean, a lot of that is a question of, of physical preparedness, right? And I can't speak to that. I mean, he had malaria. He had COVID. He's been through a lot. I don't know how he's recovered from it. He's not played any football at all at any level for months. But he is a guy who is a unique 
athlete when it comes to his, you know, just his, his explosive physical capabilities. I mean, I, the funny thing is I, I was against re-signing him, very much against re-signing him. And he's been one of my favorite players for years. And I was against it because I just thought giving that wage to someone who's going to be 31, 32, 33 is not smart. You're paying him for past performance, not future performance. But even I have to confess, the age curve dip that I expected, well, it came numerically, but I don't see it physically. I don't see a guy who's diminished. And if he is, it's it's marginal, not substantial. So if he's kept himself in shape, and I, I just get the sense that this is who keeps himself in incredible shape. I mean, even when he was in disciplinary trouble, like at Dortmund, for example, they said he, he was one of the best trainers at the club, you know, just in terms of his training. So I think you'll see him come in in good shape. He's going to need some time to touch the football, you know, to kick the football, to feel the pace of the game. The upshot of it is, and please don't take this as an insult, I think he's coming into a league that has different physical demands in terms of its pace, its physicality. You know, I think he will find it an easier league to adapt to just in terms of the the intensity of it physically. And so that, that may mean that he hits the ground running faster. If this move was happening in reverse, for example, and he had to step into the rough and tumble of the Premier League, having not played in several months, I think it would have felt like Formula One racing, you know, having been driving around in a parking lot, you know. No, not an insult at all. I, I think it's been pretty noted this season that it's not just Barcelona. Yes, Barcelona have fallen off a bit when you lose, you know, Messi, those things happen. Uh, but I mean, even a Real Madrid, who've been far <clears throat> than everyone else in, in Spain this season, even they, when you watch them going out against Sheriff or against these other teams, even Real Madrid looks a, a bit slow to it, a bit second best. And truly, yeah, this, I think, is an example where for a long time, I did argue that I thought La Liga for from 2009 to 2015, I thought was just better than the Premier League. And I think that, and or I thought at the time that the other teams in the Liga, whether it was the Cadiz's or the ones near the bottom, they didn't get enough respect where we still talked about the West Ham's or the or West Brom or whoever it was that was on the peripheral of that relegation fight at the time in the last in the last, well, we're talking six, seven, eight years ago, but mm -hmm. certainly basically since the pandemic. And I think this has a lot to do with off the field and on the field as well, where Spain is just economic, economically being just ravaged by the pandemic, where these Spanish teams are not making moves. They're not bringing in players. They're not, the clubs are not spending any money and they're in just insane amounts of debt, uh, debt that have been expounded upon by the pandemic while the premier league, again, they continue to, to just have money and pay for players. And yeah. it's created a radically different pace of the game. So not to make an excuse for Spain, but I think it's off the field stuff as much as on the field stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think you're, again, we're going to end my next question where I was going to say, why do you think we're seeing such a radically different pace of the game between the UK and Spain? And how is Aubameyang going to deal with that? But I think that's the answer. I think it has to do with off the field and on the field stuff. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, you, you are seeing a couple of things change in the Premier League. Uh, obviously, you're starting to see a higher caliber of player being willing to go to a lower, a mid-table or even lower mid-table Premier League team because, yeah. and this is becoming a problem for the Premier League. You can get a wage at Southampton that you can't get at Sevilla. Yeah. You can get a wage at Southampton that you can't get at Dortmund, you know, and and so, that you can't get at AC Milan. And so it's, it's working two ways. Players are coming to the Premier League to play for lower table teams so they can make more money. But then those teams are hamstrung because who are you going to sell them to? Like we've run into that problem. We have players that are squad players for us making an amount of money that most teams on the continent won't pay for their big name players. Like we got rid of a center back, uh, Mavropanos, Dinos Mavropanos, mm -hmm. basically took, you know, nothing, a pocket full of rocks to, to send him off to, to uh, the Bundesliga. And now like there's rumors that, that Bayern Munich are looking at him. But the problem is even a guy who was just a squad player for us, 
was one of the biggest and most expensive signings for a lower a lower Bundesliga team. So it is a um it is a difficult dynamic. So I think that's part of it is the money has allowed a more consistent level of talent top to bottom. I remember when I first started watching Arsenal, you'd go up against the bottom sides. And other than kicking you around the pitch, they had no ability to play football with you. Right. I mean, they, they were literally part-time players. I mean, a guy who broke Abu Dhabi's leg, you know, worked in a call center a couple seasons later. You know what I mean? Literally for a living. You know, the other thing that's changed is the caliber of managerial talent, coaching talent, top to bottom in the Premier League. You used to have guys that have no business coaching a Premier League team coaching players who had no business being in Premier League. Now you have guys who are elite European footballers playing at lower mid-table teams with elite European coaches coaching. And that's lifted the whole standard. And so you have this already this very pacey, powerful league that now has a more consistent level of quality on, on the pitch and a more consistent level of quality tactically. Um, you just don't come up against a lot of cloggers and, and you know, outmatched managers anymore. So, yeah, I, I think that's the point is that top to bottom, you don't go into a Premier League game. 99% of the time, you don't go into a Premier League game and think this is going to be an easy day. Those There just aren't many easy days anymore, you know? Yeah, I mean, even to the point of Burnley where with, with, Sean, with Sean Dice, it, I mean, that team, when you're going to play defensive, I think it's been a, a while that you've said, well, yeah, you're going to have to win on the counterattack. But I think there's a difference between a team like he and then going back to Kadith, where Kadith is just going to settle in and they're going to defend for their lives, but they also do leak goals sometimes. And Burnley are committed that if they're going to stay up, they're not going to leak goals. And so the, the, those teams that are settling in, if you will, and parking the bus, it, it's an elite strategy. It's not just what even Barca saw against Deportivo Alaves, where the club in Alaves was just outclassed. They just didn't have the talent. And so they were defending for their lives, as opposed to Burnley, which is proactively defending and saying, we want to defend. This is our identity. This is our style. And this is going to keep us up. This isn't going to mean we survive. This is going to keep us up. And in the years past, has helped them fight for the Europa League. So, all right, I'm going to pivot a a little bit. Uh, We're going to have some fun here because I want to talk about Terry Henry. I have somebody from Arsenal coming on, Terry Henry. I always want to bring him up when I can. So I I want to also remind people in hearing this show for a while, back when I was playing FIFA 98, right on the I guess a PlayStation one or whatever it was the Premier League was on TV in the US La Liga wasn't so I was playing with Barca on FIFA 98 but all I could do was watch the Premier League and all I could do was watch in 1999 when he arrived Terry Henry so I want to just ask you you know being a fan of Arsenal for a long long time what are some of your favorite memories of him as a player I mean Every moment he was on the pitch, he Maybe was 2003. Are you just the whole year? <laughs> just uh, yeah, I mean, unbelievable. Like he was, he was the best player in the league. I, I think essentially the whole time he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was the best player in the world in 2003, 2004, and you know the fact that he didn't win the Ballon d'Or is completely ridiculous. But whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, I, you know, obviously there's a very famous goal against Manchester United. There's the goals against Spurs. There's basically single-handedly dragging Arsenal back, you know, in the invincible season. I think I get, was it against Liverpool in the second half? I, I, I believe there was a, a game we had to come back there. It's all sepia tone memories now, but like he, I think what made him unique was that he, you know, he was a player who could score 30 goals in a season. He'd have 20 assists in the season. You know, he was the, he had the single season assist record for the Premier League. He, he could, run by anybody. He had a panache about the way he played. I mean, I think the thing that you just see is football's gotten very functional at some level, um, especially in the Premier League, you know, with, with Pep and with, with Klopp and just the way the game has developed. It's not that there aren't great players. 
it's Joe, you know, Joe de position, positional, fo- positional football, mm-hmm. and everybody has to stand in their place. And or it's gag pressing, so it's about physicality and squeezing space and winning the ball back and quick. What? But Thierry played at a time when if you had flair and panache and skill, you could embarrass and humiliate your opponents. You know, ask Jamie Carragher about that, right? Famously embarrassed by by Thierry, and like. So every time you watched him, he was going to do something audacious. You know, stand. I I, I think about him in Real, the Real Madrid, obviously at the Bernabeu, um, to get to the to the season we went to the, the Champions League final and lost. I can't remember who. You know, just standing at the corner flag, holding the corner flag, holding Real Madrid players off with his other body, like with the whole Champions League, you know, tie on the line, just so imperious. He had that ability to feel bigger than the moment. Now look. I realize he also had the ability to miss goals and, you know, finals. And the Champions League final is, is one of those moments. But at his absolute best, what made him special to me was that he had more skill than anybody else, more panache, more willingness to not just do a thing someone couldn't do, but do it in a way that embarrassed the opposition, that wowed you, that was a little bit of fantasy. Uh, I, I actually think he's underappreciated because he played – for Arsenal at a time when Arsenal was, I mean, the Invincible season is, is revered by Arsenal fans. I don't know globally if it's as appreciated as it should be, but we didn't win a Champions League, right? We, we, we disappointed in Europe, candidly, during that era. The loss to Chelsea was a devastating one in, this, in the Invincible season when Arsenal probably would have gone on to win the, the Champions League that season. So I, I think Thierry Henry is underappreciated, but there's no question in my mind that he was the best player in the world at that time, the best player in the league probably ever. Well, it's funny you do mention Pep because it's true. I think from a Kool-Aid perspective, Terry Henry, I think he does oscillate between, I mean, I did a list of the top 50 Barcelona players. And as far as pure talents, he's a top 10 player that has ever played football to play for Barcelona. But it, I think on the list, I had him maybe in the 20s or 30s because playing for that Pep Guardiola team, he was the fourth most important player on that team. And certainly you, I mean, he was limited so much in what he could do because he was forced to kind of play his role and he played his role perfectly, which is why Barcelona conquered everything. They conquered the world because Terry Henry was able to become just part of what he's capable of being. He was also not to say he was past his prime at that point, but he, the best days were a little bit behind him just barely, but yeah, he was always a player that I said, I want him at Barcelona. I don't care how it works. Just get a player like that in. And you almost see today where uh, Barcelona fans here. And I think most, Man City or whoever it may be, are a player like Erlen Holland, who is different. They're entirely different, completely different in that Holland is robotic, very much, you know, my job is to score goals. And Terry Henry, if he scored the goal, he scored the goal, but it was how he got there. For him, it was, that's why we loved him so much. He was all about the journey of just picking it up in midfield and what's going to happen. Sometimes the ball goes in the back of the net, or usually it did go in the back of the net, or he was going to create something else. But for the Holland thing, it, it kind of is almost compared to Henri, where again, in 2006, I'm saying, hey, that guy there, if he comes to Barcelona, I don't care how it works, they'll figure it out. And I think Holland's almost the same thing for Barcelona fans, where a lot say, hey, he won't fit the system. But when you're talking about that caliber, you're going to say, it's going to work. It's just, if, if, if people sacrifice, right. it'll work. Well, and this is the thing, like, I mean, what made Thierry so special is like, at any given point, he was the best dribbler in the league, also the fastest player in the league, mm-hmm. also the best shooter in the league, also the best passer in the league. You know I mean? Like, yeah. it was, it was, it was he could be whichever of those things he wanted, but I think the problem, you know, like coming to Barcelona is you don't bring in a Thierry Henry to fit in behind a Lionel Messi because Thierry Henry's quality, what made him so special is the audacity, the ego, 
Mm-hmm. The he wanted the spotlight on him. I mean, look when he came back and scored the the FA Cup goal against Leeds and the celebration he did there. Look at some of his celebrations. Thierry Henry always knew the camera was on him, and that was important to him. When you take a person with that mentality and you say, "Okay, now you're the second fiddle, or the third fiddle, or the fourth fiddle," you're you're part of the the group. Even the Invincibles, as great as they were, one through eleven, Thierry Henry shined above all of them. It was he was the star in a constellation of stars, and so I, I think it is a testament to his greatness, actually, that he was able to come to Barcelona and be viewed, I think, as a success because I think there's a lot of people that can ego and audacity and, and dynamic. I mean, you look at Mbappe wanting out of PSG because he doesn't want to be Neymar's sidekick. He doesn't want to be Messi's sidekick. He wants to be killing Mbappe's superstar, not killing Mbappe. You know, part he doesn't want to be in the boy band. He wants to be the the front man. You know, yeah. and that that I think is is. I think it's kind of special about Thierry that he, that he was able to do what he did at Barca because he's a front man, you know, and he couldn't be the front man at Barca. Well, it, it was perfect timing though, too. Messi was, remember in 2007, 2008, was still very much on the rise. So, and personality, personality rise, it was still, again, I think the timing just worked out perfect where, uh, yeah. then, I mean, David Villa was really the one who had to sacrifice when it came to being the main man and just certainly wasn't just fit into that system. And uh, yeah, the one player I said for Arsenal in that era that, I mean, Dennis Bergkamp would be another one that I would have loved if, I mean, he, he was, was time at that point, certainly, incredible. but yeah. I, I think there are some people that have Dennis Bergkamp above Thierry Henry for a couple of seasons there. And like, I, I understand there's, there's differing opinions. Dennis Bergkamp was a phenomenal player who could do things that were just out, out of this world. I can't, I can't put Bergkamp above Henry though, just for the, the raw output and the, the range of skills, all of which were at a, at a point in time, the best in the league. Yeah, I mean, Burkheim is actually a player that I would love to see now in 2022 as opposed to even then. I actually think that he yeah. was a little bit limited by the time he played and was capable of more. But okay, so not every player that came from Arsenal, as we wrap this one, we got two more for you, that was a complete success. So why do you think Cesc Fabregas, who was considered one of the best players Arsenal's ever had, why was he able to bring his Arsenal self to the camp, no, you think, from, your, from the Arsenal perspective? I think it's just the role he was given. I mean, I, I have to give up my priors here, which is that, and this isn't always popular for even among Arsenal people to say, but he's one of my favorite ever Arsenal players. He just is because of where I'm from and how much Arsenal I was able to watch. I started following Arsenal in like 98, 99, roughly, but in terms of really being able to watch every game, follow it religiously, it was really more 2004, 2005. And there was something about the Invincibles era ending and wondering where the future is going to be Arsenal. Here was this precocious young Spanish kid that, you know, had come to Arsenal as a baby, sort of made a breakthrough with, with the Invincibles, but basically was like, no, Patrick Vieira, you can go. I'm here now, you know, and literally had that talent at 16 years old, you know, by, by the time he was 18 years old, he was, there's no better. He may not have been the best midfielder in Premier League, but there was no midfielder. You could say is clearly better than him. There, there's a funny through balls are a stat that aren't really used as much anymore, but there was a point two years after Sesk had left Arsenal, he still had the most through balls of any premier league player for the previous three seasons. Like, yeah. have, you know, you know what I mean? And like, he, he, you're talking about a guy that at 18 years old, you know, was in double digits goals, double digits assists for an Arsenal team that was trying to rebuild essentially. And he kept us relevant during that period. He was uniquely spectacularly brilliant and, spectacularly brilliant in big moments. He had a way of, I remember he was injured. We were losing. He came on, he scored a goal. 
He scored another goal that like broke his ankle or like took a penalty. He took a penalty with a broken ankle, I think it was, and 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 then went off. And like he just he would rise to the occasion even at such a young age. And I think the problem is like the 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 pain that Arsenal fans felt watching Shabby put that Barca shirt on him after the world, you know, the world cup um, celebrations when he was still very much an Arsenal player. A lot of people don't forgive him for that. Don't forgive the way he left. Don't forgive breaking the promise to Arsene Wenger that he would give him one more season. You know, that's disputed and the way he engineered his exit. I've always been a little more forgiving because I'm like the guy went home to be with, you know, the people he grew up with and, and his best friends. But the reason I think it didn't work is simply that, Cesc Fabregas is a central midfielder. Cesc Fabregas is shabby. Not in the way shabby was, maybe not as metronomic, but he will score you goals from central midfield. He will play players in from unbelievable angles from central midfield to create chance after chance after chance. You can even play him maybe as a support striker right right behind number nine, but he's not a wide forward. He's not, he's not whatever weird hybrid role you tried to give him. And I think as much as I understand why Barca wanted Cesc back, I could see from a mile away there was not a role for him in that team. There was, with, with Iniesta, Xavi, and Busquets, there was no role for Cesc that was going to fit him. I think he's underappreciated by Barca fans because I think playing in a position that is not remotely the right one for him, he still managed to make it work just purely on his raw talent. But no, he should never have gone to Barca in that era. He, he missed the chance to play the position he was good at. And then he went to Chelsea, which broke my heart completely, yeah. and went back to playing the position he's good at. And even past his prime and, you know, past the best of his abilities, he still led the league in assists, led them to all kinds of trophies. And it's just makes me want to throw up. Yeah, it was too much of a good thing. Because even in that, I remember Tego Alcantara was just trying to break through as well. And so it just was such a log jam. And you could have too yep. many players who want to come home and be there. So, yep. yeah, well, that one hurt a little bit. Then Thomas Vermeulen as well, another Arsenal <laughs> captain that also featured for Barcelona. But we're not going to do that. So the last question is not a question. How about Alex Club? What about, I was what about, about to Alex Song? Alex my, Club, come on. <laughs> my last question wasn't a question. It was Alex Club and Alex Song. How dare you? Because I look at Alex Song and the, uh, the, uh, the, the report that just came out this week that Alex Song basically admitted at this point, Barcelona offered me so much money. So I went and I was told that I probably wasn't going to play. And that was totally fine by me. So for all the times that, that Barcelona have been able to take an Arsenal player, they've also taken uh, Alex Club and, and Alex Song. So it, it's happened the before. The funny thing is, I mean, and this is why football is such a strange thing. Alex Kleb was sensational for Arsenal. Alex Song was never sensational, but one of our most important players in the season before he left. Yeah. And it just goes to show you that, like, you know, whether it's Sess or Vermaelen or Song or Kleb or whoever you want to say, it, there are situations where the right set of skills on the right team in the right position work, and they don't work anywhere else. And you know, that's why transfers are complicated because if you told me that Alex Club was going to go to Barcelona and be a disastrous failure, I would have said you're out of your mind. Yeah. But it just so happened that those skills that he had in that team of players that were surrounded by him with that coach and that system worked. I can't, I can't really explain it any better than that. Well, I think you've explained everything you needed to about Obama Yang, and I'm glad we got to talk about some Terry on Reed today. Unfortunately, yeah, we did end with Alex Song. But I want to ask <laughs> you and let anybody know who does split their allegiances we know that, I, you know, you and I were talking about this before, that you never see any Barcelona supporters also being like, oh, you know, Man United is fine by me, or Man City or Chelsea are fine <laughs> by me. But there is something that you do see some allegiances. So for any potential gooners listening, where can people find you? 
yeah, I host the Arsenal Vision podcast. And if you didn't enjoy listening to me, there are much more intelligent, articulate gentlemen that come on and women that come on. We do a lot of um, great interviews, but we have a core group of guys. We, we try to be data-driven. We try to be analytical. It's not <clears throat> sort of hysterical, reactive stuff. We try to dive into the tactics and, and, and obviously talk about the main issues of the day. But it's the Arsenal Vision podcast. You can go to our website and see what it's about at arsenalvisionpodcast.com. <clears throat> usually uh, we put out, well, not usually, every week we put out two free episodes, usually on Monday and Thursday. And then we have our Patreon content throughout the week. But if someone wants to give it a try, they can do that. They can also uh, watch our Deadline Day live stream we did over on YouTube if they want to check that out, see what that's about. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's a pleasure to come on. And if anybody does want to give us a listen, we'd appreciate it. So again, we thank you for coming on. And again, that Blue Wire podcast network <laughs> synergy. So again, Brotherhood. we're <laughs> at the Barcelona Pod everywhere you can find us. And everybody knows Facebook group, Patreon, YouTube, all that stuff, the Barcelona Podcast. So thanks so much for listening to the show. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Of course, the Barcelona.